Welcome to this podcast from the Carter Center. Good morning. I'll get everyone else. Good morning, please. It has never come to my mind that I was going to face him directly, face to face. This is Samuel McCoy. Oh, Samuel? Yeah. All right, man. I've been hearing good things about you. I was very nervous. Just to meet physically for the first time, I was very, very nervous. My name is McCoy Samuel Yebe. I'm the national coordinator for the Guinea Education Program, Minister of Health, Republic of Southern Sudan. I have worked for this program for maybe over 13 or 14 years. And every year I have always been seeing people who are suffering and uh, children crying. I could not forget the face of uh, that small girl because uh, she was in pain. And uh, in the process of uh, removing the worm, definitely you see her crying and crying. And the mother was there sitting next to her. You see the wound is actually badly infected. So I was happy when we were able to remove the worm, but certainly I was also really very distressed by the level of pain and the suffering that uh, that small girl is going through. So last October, we were near to a pond that uh, the community used. And then I saw this lady coming with her daughter. And she has, of course, grown a, a bit bigger. The first person I recognized was the mother. And then I looked at the girl, and she's just perfect. The face is just the same. I was really very happy to know that she has never had guinea worm since then. Also, the mother confirmed to us that since then they had continued to filter water to protect themselves from having guinea worm disease. Doing this eradication campaign in Southern Sudan is not that, that very easy. And I want to recognize the uh, efforts of uh, all the team, both expatriates and nationals. I think many other countries may not really understand what the nature of the work in Southern Sudan. You cannot say, okay, I cannot go to this location because there is no road. So if there is no road, okay, get down with your vehicle, get yourself some water, get yourself on your gum boots, and then you start to walk. And that's why we're able to know all the paths, all the hills, all the streams, and uh, all these locations, because we walk. A lot of walk today. A lot of walking today. This by itself shows that Guinea worm can soon be defeated. <laughs> to me, I feel that, and I'm sure many others feel the same, that this will be a hard-won achievement. Um, getting to zero will be something that uh, will be rewarding for everybody. One thing that I know is that these people who will be freed of genome disease will never forget, never forget the effort that have been put in place to free them of this disease. I'd like to thank everybody for joining us here, both, uh, both in the room and <coughs> online. Uh, my name is Kane Farabaugh. I'm a correspondent for Voice of America. And uh, for the last 10 years, I've had the pleasure to be able to cover many of the different programs uh, of the Carter Center, both the health and peace initiatives. Um, 
I'm pleased to be able to be here today to be able to guide this discussion of uh, the Carter Center's uh, uh, Neglected Tropical Disease Program. And I'm here sharing the stage uh, with two of the Carter Center's health experts. They're going to talk to us about how fighting neglected tropical diseases can improve the lives of the world's poor. For those of us watching live online, we hope you're going to join in on that discussion. Uh, you can do so by using the Twitter hashtag ConvosTCC. Now, later on this evening, we're going to have a question and answer session. Um, at that time, we'll welcome those of you here in the room to uh, join that conversation by going to one of the microphones on either side. If you have a question and you're out there online on the web, you can ask that question using that hashtag, ConvosTCC. That's hashtag C-O-N-V as in Victor, O-S-T-C-C. And we look forward to uh, hearing those questions. But first, I'm pleased to introduce Dr. Donald Hopkins and Dr. Frank Richards from the Carter Center's health programs. Uh, Dr. Donald Hopkins directs all of the health programs of the Carter Center. He first joined the center in 1987 as the senior consultant for health programs, where he led the center's efforts to eradicate guinea worm disease and river blindness worldwide. Dr. Hopkins' professional experience includes serving as deputy director and acting director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. He was an assistant professor of tropical public health at Harvard School of Public Health, and he directed the smallpox eradication measles control program in Sierra Leone, West Africa. Dr. Frank Richards is an expert in parasitic and tropical diseases who has worked extensively in Latin America and Africa. His professional interest is in the safe and effective delivery of available tools to control or eliminate tropical infectious diseases. The health programs he directs at the Carter Center have helped ministries of health and local communities to provide more than 200 million preventative treatments for parasitic disease in 11 countries. The malaria program has helped provide nearly 15 million insecticide-treated bed nets in Nigeria, Ethiopia, and Hispaniola. Now, the video that we've just seen, this is a video that covers uh, the programs of the Carter Center's uh, uh, guinea worm eradication program in South Sudan. Uh, with the partnership of the people of South Sudan. Um, Dr. Hopkins, uh, if you can, I want you to talk a little bit here with us about uh, the gentleman that was profiled in this video, Mr. McCoy. Um, you've been able to, to meet with him. You know him in the field. Can you kind of uh, explain the important role he's playing? Well, the, the important thing to note is that, for example, last year we had 148 cases total in the world. 113 of them were in South Sudan. And I thank God almost every day that Mr. McCoy is the national coordinator there because this is a, the most challenging um, environment that we face with the Guinea Worm Medication Program. And it's not just the numbers, but that country, as you may know, had two decades of war before the South Sudan uh, program uh, really began uh, formally. It's a vast country with a long rainy season, no infrastructure, very few, uh, very few people, and very few uh, trained people. And the communities with guinea worm disease are very, very traditional. In addition to that, whereas in most countries we had to deal with people being either in a village or on their farm, in South Sudan, people are on the village, on a farm, in a bull cattle camp, a milking cattle camp, a further away farm or a close-in garden and walking in, in between those. So it's a very, very complex uh, environment to try to figure out where someone got infected and to try to, to stop the infection. But Mr. McCoy is very dedicated, he's very honest and very smart and he knows his country 
very well and has been very creative in meeting that challenging environment. To date, the South Sudan guinea worm eradication program has performed as well or better. There's only one other program I think of which, in my judgment, is comparable to what South Sudan uh, uh, has been able to do. So he's a, he's a, he's a very, important, uh, very important guy in the Guinea Worm program. Something to point out, too, Mr. McCoy, he's intimately knowledgeable or knows uh, everyone who has the infection right now in South Sudan. Down, now that we're down to uh, several dozens of, of cases, McCoy knows them all and is very familiar with them. Um, I, I, I think that because now you can identify all of the cases that are left. It some, in some ways might understate the massive effort that it's taken to get towards this finish line. Um, but it can be set back, and I think an example of that recently is the unrest in South Sudan. How does that affect what's going on there, at least in the effort to get to that finish line? Well, one, one of the, one of the um, most challenging things about being down to such small numbers is that any mistake uh, leading to a dozen or more cases. The, the reproductive potential of this disease is one worm that escapes our dragnet can give rise to several dozens of worms the, the following year if that person contaminates the drinking water supply. So the, the impact, the potential impact of a mistake is that much bigger. And so the, the people often say to me, you must be glad that you're down. Yes, I am glad that we're down to such fewer numbers and so many fewer people are suffering now, but the challenge of this last, last stage is grave. And in every instance, in every country that's eliminated guinea worm disease so far, they have had a setback at the very, at the, at the very end. We're, we're praying that we won't have that in, uh, in, in South Sudan, but that's a worry. I might add that I was with McCoy when we ran into that mother and her daughter um, three years, I think it was, after she had been filmed in the clip that you saw earlier, and it was, it was just very, very gratifying to see that the child was no longer suffering and that mother and child had changed their behavior. Dr. Richards, I'm wondering if you could maybe just give us a scenario here, maybe just set the stage about how this uh, disease is transmitted, at least uh, what the difficulties are here and maybe perhaps monitoring water sources and treating water sources and filtering water sources. Tell us about that process and how it's prevented from tra transmitting. Sure. Um, a lot of what we're going to be talking about tonight are worms. So this is the first <laughs> of many uh, worms, and it's sort of an odd specialty for Dr. Hopkins and I. They're worm specialists. And generally, that's, um, uh, that's important for developing countries. Um, there are not a lot of worms left in the United States. There, there are some left, but not a lot. Uh, and the importance of the worm parasites um, really relates to um, the, not just the biology, but the, the social and economic fabric that we're faced with here. Um, and in the case of guinea worm, it's the crudest possible drinking water you can think of. As a matter of fact, if I were to, to, to just pour water through my shirt, um, I would probably avoid getting infected with guinea worm. The, the life cycle is, is, is a very, very interesting one, and, and these, these uh, parasites we're going to talk about, if, if you're familiar with the life cycle of alien, if anybody out here is, is, uh, mm -hmm. uh, knows, uh, have, is a science fiction fan like me, um, you'll, you'll recognize some of this bursting forth and going, going out and coming back in. And that's pretty much the way this, this parasite 
um, works. You saw a worm emerging from the skin. And this is actually the longest worm, uh, or one of the longest worms, at least, to infect humans. It's about three feet long. Um, it, 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 it's the female worm that's emerging to release her larva. And uh, the larva, to be able to um, complete the life cycle, if you have a little larva that wants to grow up now to be a mama worm, she has to get out into the environment and be ingested by a, um, a crustacean in the water, very tiny water flea. And in that water flea, it, that water flea will ingest these larvae if you put your leg or your extreme, extremity into the water such that the larvae can get there. The larvae will, uh, if they're ingested by this water flea, will be able to develop into a subsequent form which is infectious if it is, if the, if it is ingested by a human. So um, this, this brings up a couple of important uh, points of control. One is if people don't put their legs or feet into the water and put uh, the larvae into the water, um, then the transmission cycle will not continue. If there are no water fleas in the water, uh, then the transmission cycle will not continue. And if you don't ingest a copepod, this water flea, the transmission will not continue. So those three points are all points which you can attack. Anyway, if you ingest the water flea, the parasite develops, gets into your tissues. There are males and females. The female has to be inseminated. And within one year, more or less, the worm comes out. And that one-year period is a very, very important period. So if you can prevent the case from, or the person with the worm from putting the foot or foot in the water, if you can use a, 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 a chemical, very safe chemical that we have called Temephos or Abate to uh, kill the uh, copepods, the little water fleas, you can stop the transmission. Or if you can get people to filter their water, you can stop the transmission cycle. And this is a, this is a situation where there's no medicine and there's no diagnostic such that you can tell, oh, you're about to have a worm uh, or we can treat you. It really is completely based on prevention and, importantly, behavioral change, filtering your water or not putting your feet into water when a worm emerges. Prevention is a key word, too, because if this campaign is successful, this would be the second disease eradicated, but the important thing here, the first through prevention. Um, can you tell me about uh, the setback so far? I mean, have there been instances in some countries where you thought it was gone and, and, and then suddenly you've, see, you've seen it come back? Well, the most, most uh, dramatic example of that sort is that right now we had the country of Chad where it appeared the disease was gone even though they had very poor surveillance for 10 years. And then suddenly it, uh, it, it reappeared. And we know that an individual can carry this parasite if they're already infected to another country. So we've, we've known that. But that was, Chad has been the most uh, spectacular example of that sort. All through the campaign, we've had many examples of a person moving from one place to the other uh, during this incubation period before the parasite appears and uh, people are able to move around freely and they, they're somewhere else when the parasite uh, comes out. So that's always been a problem. But I'd like to speak also to the issue of behavioral change because people often uh, think that it's difficult to get people to change their behavior and to a degree it is, but you've seen what this worm looks like. And one of the things that I marvel continuously at is the fact that people have these worms coming out of their body 
and don't go nuts, as I think uh, I would. So in that sense, people are motivated, uh, potentially. And so the challenge for us is to help them to understand how they can stop having this terrible infection, which they surely do not want, as any rational person would, would, would come to that same conclusion. And so it's, it's a matter of convincing them that they can take specific steps to protect themselves and, and their family. And surprise, most people do, presented with that kind of information, being in that kind of an environment. And those that don't the first time generally are likely to be persuaded when they see neighbors who have done that um, then be free of, of kidney worms. So that's part of the challenge. But we're dealing with human beings. I like to say that the challenge here is more the, the humans we're dealing with than, than than the worms. The worms are trying to survive, but it's the people that's allowing them to survive. Our job is to convince the people to stop allowing them to survive. Mm -hmm. In the video, I think what was very dramatic for me anyway, watching that video, was when the worm has emerged from the, the foot in this instance. Um, there was a medical worker there who was actually holding up with his bare hand the guinea worm right in front of the camera lens. And uh, you know, is the worm at that point still alive? And you know, obviously, is there a transmission danger just by simply grasping the worm itself? I mean, that, that would look somewhat dramatic. <laughs> this infection can only be transmitted to humans by drinking water containing right. those copepods, water fleas that Frank talked about, that themselves contain infective stages of the larvae. You could, if you chose to, eat that worm, yeah. and you would not be <laughs> infected uh, by it. That's, that's not, that's not yeah. the, uh, the problem. The worm, some of the worms are still alive at that stage, uh, depending on how long they've been coming out. Others, other, others uh, are not. But the, the danger is that worm being able to deposit those immature forms of the worm back in the water. Where is the effort at now? I think a lot of people online and perhaps here in this room would really like to know when the end will be. Nobody out there wants to know when the end will be more than I do. But, <laughs> but we all do. And the answer is we don't know. We think we're very close now uh, within a matter of months or a year or two. But uh, of the 148 cases that existed in the world in 2013, 113 of those cases were in South Sudan. The, the rest were distributed in, uh, in Chad, in uh, Mali, and in Ethiopia, with uh, three of the cases having gone across the border into Sudan, uh, the, the former northern states of, uh, of, of, of Sudan. So we're, we're very close, but uh, we won't know until we've gotten there. And in fact, we won't know until a year plus after we will have gotten there when we don't see any more worms appearing. Um, one interesting antidote I'd like to point out here is that perhaps a lot of you have seen the, the medical symbol. It's uh, a staff with what appears to be a serpent wrapped around the staff. Um, but what is it likely that that is wrapped around that staff? Well, many people think that that, in fact, represents the ancient mode of treating guinea worm disease, the method that's still used uh, today, and that is that uh, two things. This parasite has been around at least since ancient Egypt, so it's been long. It's been known. It was known to uh, Greek and, uh, and and Roman uh, people as well as folks in, in India and other places where it occurred. And the ancient practice has been to wrap the worm around the stick. You you must not. Try to pull that worm out because if the worm breaks, then all of those 
hundreds of thousands of immature larvae are, are discharged into your tissues rather than into the water, and that creates a terrible reaction that uh, potentially could be uh, life-threatening. And so the ancient practice has been to coax this worm out over several days, weeks, or even, even months by wrapping it slowly around a stick. And it is thought that that ancient practice was the inspiration for the uh, caduceus, the staph of Asclepius, the symbols of medicine. And Dr. Richards, uh, Dr. Hopkins, we were talking about this earlier. That is the symbol of the World Health Organization. Yes, so we're going to, in a, in a, in a matter, strip the World Health Organization of part of their symbol. <laughs> but I think, I think it is kind of fun. Uh, a, a charge to everybody in the audience is now when you, uh, um, when you leave this, this talk and the next time an ambulance drives by and you see a serpent on a staff, you'll, you'll, you'll think of uh, number one of guinea worm and number two... Um, what audacity to eradicate the symbol of medicine. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, there's another uh, neglected tropical disease, and I believe that the World Health Organization lists 17 diseases as neglected tropical diseases. Uh, guinea worm is one of them. Uh, the other is river blindness, and uh, we're going to talk now about uh, what the Carter Center is doing to eliminate river blindness after we watch this short film. Vamos a las finca terrales de acá de Patulún, Suchitepeques, de Guatemala. Araceli Castillo last visited this coffee farm 25 years ago. In the late 1980s, she was part of what locals called the Medication Brigades, a mobile oncocercosis research and education troop touting a promising new medicine called ivermectin to control the disease. Today, Araceli reconnects to the past through Arturo Espaderos, the administrator at Los Torales. Guatemala was once the most endemic country in Latin America for onchocerciasis, or river blindness, a disease transmitted by relentless bites from the black flies that breed in streams and rivers. Those same streams provide irrigation for farmers, so coffee pickers and their families who live nearby were hit hard by the disease. Araceli remembers what it looked like, especially in the children. Primero sus ojos no eran como blancos, sino que era amarillo. La piel con mucha resequedad y como erupciones. Guatemala had a tremendous tradition in uh, finding the way to control and to eliminate this disease. The first initial studies were done here in Guatemala and specifically in this finca, Tarrales, where we are right now. This is just about ready. After his father died, a young Andy Burge took over as owner of Finca Torales. And the farm families became part of his family. So he was on board to cooperate with the research teams, who aimed to get Onco under control. It was difficult in the beginning. Difficult because convincing people to take ivermectin was not an easy sell, after prior drugs had caused serious side effects. Andy took the pills along with the farm families. I showed him as an example that you could take it, it wasn't a problem. 
In fact, it was a solution. By 2012, Guatemala, along with Colombia, Ecuador, and Mexico could celebrate because they stopped transmission of river blindness disease through semi-annual treatments of ivermectin donated worldwide by Merck as Mectizan and health education efforts sponsored by the Carter Center's Onchocerciasis Elimination Program for the Americas. It's 2013 and Araceli is back where she started. Then she didn't know what the outcome of the trials and research would be. Now she does. And things look a little different down on the farm. Dr. Richards, you started uh, your medical career not far from where the... Oh, this, I was there. I recognized uh, Finca Torales. I recognized that white building. I used to sit there and slap the black flies that were biting me. And uh, it's... Uh, I know Andy. I know Araceli. I know all those folks. I, you know, it makes... You know, it makes everybody feel kind of old because it was true. <laughs> it all started in the late 1980s. I went to Guatemala in 1987, and I was there to 1992. And I participated in the, the work that demonstrated that um, not only could we um, reduce the, the illness, what we call the morbidity, the scratching and the eye disease, but we could also block transmission such that, uh, you know, the, the parade going through uh, Patalul, uh, I don't know if you, you picked up, they had a little coffin with a worm on top of it, descansa and paz, rest in peace. And uh, it's, it's extremely gratifying. Just, just to, to review very quickly uh, the biology, not much different from um, uh, sort of the concept we spoke about with, with guinea worm. First, river blindness, the parasite's called Onchocerca volvulus. Um, and it is also, like guinea worm, a, uh, a tissue worm but it doesn't come out, it stays in your body. As a matter, matter of fact, um, volvulus means rolled up. I don't know if the medical term, you have a volvulus, your intestines rolled up. So the worms, the male and the female worms are rolled up in a little ball and you can often feel them under the skin. And then the female worms, rather than coming out, will release their microfilaria, you heard that term, the embryos, and they, they get underneath the skin. Uh, in this case, rather than a a waterborne water flea, it's a black fly that has adopted to the transmission. So it picks up uh, the larva, and that becomes infectious over a period of time, and then it's re-inoculated in someone when the, when the fly bites again. And um, in this case, you can't filter your water. And in this case, the worms live a lot longer than one year. Um, so that's, that's a very, very important point. The, the, so that's the transmission cycle. The microfilaria get into your eyes and can cause uh, inflammation and blindness. They get into your skin and cause itching. And, and that's, that's the basic parasite uh, life cycle. Now, when I came to CDC in 1982, um, I was assigned uh, river blindness. And they, they told me at the time, you know, there's no medicine for this. People are going to call you up. Um, and ask you, uh, what, what do we do? And you're going to have to tell them, essentially, this is an untreatable condition. But there's hope, 
because uh, there's a new medicine called ivermectin mectazan that is in, a, in clinical trials, and we're hoping that it will uh, become available soon. And so I followed that very carefully, and actually in 1987, the year that I went to Guatemala, Merck, which had developed this medicine, made the announcement that they were going to donate this medicine. Uh, and since then, over a billion treatments um, have been provided uh, in the Americas, and more importantly, in Africa, because 99% of river blindness is in Africa. It came to the Americas largely through the Atlantic slave trade. So it tra was transplanted, if you will, um, to this part of the world, and it had to find the right black fly vectors, because not all the vectors can transmit this. So if you can imagine, it had to find where it could adapt itself for transmission. So it's much more limited in this hemisphere than, than uh, on the African side. And even though we'll do a lot of these comparisons, unlike guinea worm, where you can identify 148 cases, I think the World Health Organization estimates there are 18 million people in the world that uh, you know, have suffered from, from river blindness, and 99% of those 18 million cases are now That's in right. Africa. And there are 130 million, roughly, at risk of getting the infection. So it's, it's a, we, we still have a way to go, but some great progress has been made using mass drug administration um, uh, as a um, delivery approach. Mass drug administration is important to understand. Uh, it's sort of like a, uh, a poor man's vaccination program. Everybody in a community would be treated without having to diagnose each individual as whether or not you need to be treated or not. And this would um, uh, reduce illness, and it would also decrease the transmission of the infection. What we learned in Guatemala is uh, in the studies is that if you treat twice per year, um, in, in general, that is enough to break the transmission cycle in roughly eight to 10 years. We should point out also that the, what we're learning in the Americas is also proving to be, particularly the twice a year treatment approach, is also proving to be useful and effective in Africa. And in the Americas, where six countries had 13 foci, we're now down to two tiny foci on the border between Brazil and Venezuela. And so only two of 13 foci remain in two of the six countries. Right, well we got started in 1988, 89. The estimate was that there were four million people in the Americas um, at risk of river blindness. Then when careful mapping was done, we discovered that that was closer to 600,000. And when treatments peaked in the Americas, it was roughly a million treatments per year about 2005. And now we're down to about 20,000 treatments per year, over a 95% drop. So this, the treatments peaked and have gone down, and now we're in what we call the end game. Similar to the situation in guinea worm, um, uh, the, the last cases, and uh, as usual, in the most difficult places. So we spoke about most cases being in the uh, Republic of South Sudan, most cases right now of river blindness that, well, all cases of river blindness left in this hemisphere are in a very difficult area in the Amazon and largely in Venezuela, and we all hear about the challenges with Venezuela. So it always seems as though it's the most difficult places in these eradication and elimination programs to get done with. And I think also, too, we, we talk river blindness, and so uh, we think that the symptoms or the expression of this disease is in the blindness, and that is... Uh, uh, the end result of the infection, but also too, um, one of the uh, one of the signs of this is the intense itching that this creates in the in the victims. And mm -hmm. in a country, 
in, on the African continent where uh, people are dark-skinned, this itching creates uh, uh, the erosion of that skin on the surface of, 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 of their body, and it becomes, becomes white, and then there's a stigma uh, associated with people who have right. white skin in that way. Can it's you called kind of... actually leopard skin because you start getting skin that alternates between light and dark and looks, looks like a leopard's. But even before it gets to that, to that stage, the, we say itching, but this is itching on steroids, <laughs> where people are using stones and sticks uh, to scratch this intensity. They are distracted at, at school or, or at work, and in that sense, disabled. This is disabling itching. So, and that's the point, I think, because, uh, again, too, the end result, uh, if, the, if it's not treated, is, is, is blindness, but lost productivity. Uh, talk about how important that is, especially to people who depend on the livelihood of everybody living in the village to make life work for them. Well, when you go out to these villages, and, and one, of the, one of the positive things, I think, about modern technology is that we are able to, or people in countries like this, are able to see, get a sense uh, remotely of what it's like to be in, in, in some of those villages. But you remember that people are living uh, really uh, subs- at a subsistence level in many of, of the village. And so every setback, every hindrance is potentially threatening to them and their, 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 their families because they're, they're all trying to do what everybody else is trying to do feed, clothe, and house their, their family. And yet, if you're unable to farm, most people are growing their own food or growing food to, to sell or something else to sell, if you're unable to do that, you're disabled. And moreover, these diseases that we're talking about tend to cluster in, in communities. And so it's not a matter of being able to call your uncle or nephew or brother to come help you often because they are having uh, suffering at the, at the same time as well. And so the, the, the impact of these diseases, one way of thinking of it is that these diseases are, are, are hurting what have been described as the three building blocks of these kinds of communities, education, agriculture, and health. And if it doesn't get you one way, it can get you... Uh, another way. And in fact, even one disease is often coming at you from all three of those diseases. And then when you imagine that people are also suffering from several diseases at the same time, it's, it's very, very important to be able to take out, help them to take out the ones that you're able to do something about. In the case of ever blindness, there is the silver bullet, and that's ivermectin. You can't treat guinea worm with any kind of drugs. You simply have to get the worm out of the body. Can you tell me how life-changing that, that drug has been for so many people? I think you touched on it briefly, Dr. Well, Richards. But... One, one thing, I'll just to come up on this, this uh, itching on steroids um, and how severe that, that is. Um, again, coming to the shirt analogy I mentioned, one um, in Uganda... Uh, a really, for me, poignant moment was, was um, when, when a woman named Miss Maria showed me her shirt from back in those days and the stone that she used to scratch her skin. And the, the, the material of the shirt was basically worn through. Um, and basically her statement was, until my skin began to bleed, I didn't feel as though I had any relief. Many of us may have had mosquito bites or things like that, where it's only when it starts to hurt, it's better than when it itches. And uh, when this medicine came out, uh, 
just the relief from the itching, not even talking about the blindness issue, the relief from the itching. Um, women said, you know, um, I'm beginning to cycle more regularly now. Um, everyone got a better night's sleep. And suddenly, children were starting to be named Mectazan. <laughs> they were beginning to be named after because, um, you know, people were feeling so much better. Uh, so I, I, the fact that, that these results um, came from the medicine was a demonstration to the community that this was, was so important. And so communities began to organize themselves um, through assistance uh, from the Carter Center and the Ministries of Health to determine how to distribute this very safe and effective tablet. Um, and that kind of community empowerment is, uh, is a very important piece of what the Carter Center does. I, I don't want to uh, underplay the, the importance of Merck's leadership in making this donation, but also stepping back and saying, here's the donation, but it's up to the countries, the communities, and the international community to figure out how you're going to mm -hmm. do this and to find the resources to do this. Um, and it was an enormously successful um, uh, undertaking which a number of other pharmaceutical companies had a look at and decided they were going to do that too. Not only because it's the right thing to do, but they noted that their employees, the employees of Merck, took extreme pride in the fact that the company was doing this. Uh, and the morale, as a result, um, was elevated. So the statue, I hope you'll go see the statue of the um, young boy leading his blinded father. That's the river blindness statue here. That same uh, copies of that statue, or, the, or replicas of the, that statue, you will also find at Merck headquarters and at the World Health Organization, um, to, in, in, uh, indicating the, the, the importance of the, the partnership in, in this. Ken, if I might, I, we should also uh, note that this drug, Mectazan, also treats intestinal worms. Mm -hmm. and, so, and, and in fact, often uh, the families uh, appreciate the fact that they see all these worms being passed uh, from, from their children. I would also know Frank spoke about the pride of the uh, workers at Merck. I shall never forget when uh, President Carter went to uh, DuPont and Precision Fabrics Group. Uh, DuPont donated the nylon material for the nylon filters for the guinea worm. Precision Fabrics Group weaving it. Precision Fabric Groups normally wove bulletproof vests and parachutes. And yet they told us that on the days when their looms were working on the filter material for guinea worm, their workers said they took extra special caution because they knew that if there were a flaw in the material, a child in Africa might get guinea worm disease. So the, this, this has been, it's an important example of uh, American corporate philanthropy, but also an important example of uh, how the workers feel about uh, what their company is doing as well. How might we know ivermectin here in the United States? Well, the veterinary preparation is HeartGuard. Yep. Um, right. And that is used to treat a, a, a very similar parasite. Again, they're large worms. Stretch them out. They're 18 inches long. They're coiled up. But where do they coil up? In the heart of dogs. Um, and uh, it's called Diorfilaria imidis is the scientific name. And it's transmitted by mosquitoes. And the worms produce microfilaria that circulate in the blood, and the mosquitoes transmit. Sometimes an occasional human will get them, but it's a dead end, but you can actually see actually a lung nodule from this. So, but 
Ivermectin in this case is given quite frequently, as everybody knows who, who treats their dog monthly with, with heart guard, um, to prevent their dogs from being infected. Um, in this case of ivermectin treatment, uh, you're, you're, you're treating to prevent the microfilaria from getting in the eyes and the skin and to prevent the black flies from transmitting. So there are different strategies on how the medicine's being used. Uh, before we move on, I, I want to make sure that we emphasize uh, the approach here now with river blindness. The Carter Center, uh, historically, in fighting this, this disease, has it's been to control it. Uh, recently, in the last several years, the effort has moved from control to elimination, and that's by increasing the dosage of ivermectin. Can you kind of talk to me about how this effort came about and, and why the shift from control to elimination? Well, first of all, I've always been a twice per year ivermectin man um, because that's what we learned and that's what we looked at when, when I was in Guatemala from 1987 to 1992. Um, so the, the aim in the Americas from the very beginning was not just to reduce symptoms and blindness and itching, but to reach a point where we could say, we're going to stop treating because it's finished. Can you imagine reaching a point where you don't have to give your dogs heart guard because it was finished? That's the difference. Are you going to have to treat forever? You're going to have to treat your dogs forever. Sorry to tell you that. But, um, but if you took an approach of not just controlling or dealing with your own individual dog, but getting rid of this parasite completely, for example, in the United States, then you could reach a point of safely stopping. And that's what we demonstrated in the Americas. We've safely stopped treatment in over 95% of the areas. In Africa, the approach was, well, it's so much, there's so many people, it's so large, um, we don't, until we have a proof of principle, we don't think we're going to do that. We're going to just set up a system that goes forever, that treats everyone in these communities forever, once per year, um, and will control the situation. Well, as you know, the Carter Center sort of has, we have in our genes the idea of eradication and elimination. So with the success in the Americas, the big push from our angle is, um, look, you've done a great job in controlling river blindness in Africa. Now let's take it to the next step. Um, and this is uh, the result, of you've, you've, as you mentioned, of our new policy, which is largely based on intensifying uh, the treatment regimen and uh, treating every six months rather than every year. I know this is a difficult question, and I'm sure there's a lot of people here and perhaps online that want to ask this, and so I know it's difficult, but can you eradicate river blindness? Can you eliminate it completely? Um, again, at the Carter Center, we would hope so. We would, I think the, the international community is not quite ready to hear that. But I think that the, the, the big challenge in that sense is that there uh, are some complicating factors in a couple of countries uh, particularly the Democratic Republic of Congo, the country of Gabon, um, parts of Angola, where um, there is yet another parasite. You got, I told you I was telling you about worms. So <laughs> I think this is about the fourth or fifth worm that I've described. But they all have this common thing of adult male and female worms producing either larvae or microfilaria that somehow have to get out and come back in to the body for the reproductive cycle. There, this is a worm that's called Loa Loa. And loa loa um, generally doesn't cause any problem in people. But when you take ivermectin, a fraction of people who take ivermectin have so many microfilaria in their bodies that they have a very severe adverse event. 
Um, as I mentioned, this medicine um, has been very, very safe, uh, but it was discovered in these countries when there's also this infection with Loa Loa, uh, people can actually, some people can go into a coma. And obviously, this is not what we're trying to do. Until this is a big area of research, the, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is very, very much involved in trying to figure out how do we deal with the areas where there is river blindness infection and people also have this, this sister parasite, if you will, Loa Loa, which prevents us from using ivermectin. Uh, you know, it, it's very interesting. Anybody here have a uh, collie dog? Um, there are certain dogs that can't take ivermectin or heart dog, uh, heartworm either uh, for, for other reasons, but it's not uncommon that you can't always use ivermectin for those reasons. And until we come up with a different solution and different strategy, I think we can't talk about eradication from the sense that globally it will be gone. If we could, if we could be very optimistic that you know, we will find that answer, then I think people will be much more ready to talk about that um, as a final outcome. I'm more optimistic than Frank, and I think what, we, what we've learned in the, in the Americas, we'll, we'll clean up the areas without Loa Loa in, uh, in Africa and figure out a way to deal with the Loa Loa in those limited areas also. I, I would also note that uh, Loa Loa often doesn't cause symptoms, but it's manifest by a worm crawling across your eyeball. And I don't know about you, but that would cause me uh, problems. <laughs> well, we're going to shift the discussion. Honey, is there something in my eye? <laughs> if you don't have a mirror, <laughs> no problem. <laughs> we're going to shift the discussion now to uh, another neglected d disease, uh, lymphatic filariasis and malaria. And before we begin that discussion, let's take a look at this video, which will show us uh, the, the problem. I'm Dr. Bridget Uko Egwale. I'm the head of the Department of Public Health in the Ministry of Health in Nigeria. The guideline for elimination of malaria and lymphatic filariasis is very important to us. These Nigerian guidelines are very important because they bring together two seemingly different conditions that have a common element. I told you, hang out and that is they're both transmitted by the same mosquito. The idea is that from working together, these two programs will achieve the goals of both diseases, elimination of malaria, elimination of lymphatic filariasis, more effectively and hopefully cheaper. The Nigerian government is beginning to see the importance of health issues because it's only when you are healthy that you can be productive. Malaria can be lethal, particularly for young children. It also can cause anemia. So children who go to school don't learn as well, their growth and development is hampered. Lymphatic filariasis affects primarily adults, causing um, swelling of the legs, grotesque swelling in men of the genitals, and is one of the greatest causes of disability on earth. The guidelines have key elements that we should highlight. Number one, working together to get long-lasting insecticidal bed nets out to everyone and having everyone sleep under these nets every night. That protects from both malaria and from lymphatic filariasis. The other thing that's very important is that the lymphatic filariasis program is based on what we call mass drug administration, where tablets are 
are given to everyone once a year. Those tablets are also good against intestinal worms which cause anemia. So malaria causes anemia, intestinal worms cause anemia, so both programs can have a benefit from the Mass Drug Administration. Visiting houses to give Mass Drug Administration is a great point to make sure that the bed nets are up, hung properly, and are used every night. Delivering these health education messages at the community, indeed the household level, is something the malaria program should be able to get from its linkage through these guidelines to the lymphatic fluoriasis program. We are encouraging every other country to make sure that they also develop this co-implementation and guideline to ensure that we don't spread the disease because if we are the only one that have done it and we are able to eliminate, if other neighboring countries are not able to, then we are not safe. But if at the end of the day everybody is now at the same plane and the same level with us, then definitely in Africa would have eliminated malaria and lymphatic fluorosis. But you would treat her yeah. based on her age? The Qatar Center have been very, very supportive. They were always there for us. And I'm always proud of them and always thank them for their efforts and for their assistance. In watching that clip, I think the one thing that I just learned there was that lymphatic filariasis is the leading cause of disability in the world. Explain the scope of that for me. Well, uh, it's a leading cause. Mm -hmm. um, it's somewhere between the third and the fourth most uh, common cause of, of, uh, of disability. And it's not just from the big legs, but sort of the, 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 the thing that's hard to talk about, but the most common manifestation is in men with swollen uh, uh, scrota, their you know, genitals, um, that can uh, uh, reach a very large size, weigh several kilos, and if you can imagine living in an agricultural, the men can, if you can imagine living in an agricultural community and walking and, and working all day um, with that weight, um, it's, it's a major cause of disability. A, a quick review, because everyone now sort of knows the, the, the story of the adult male and female worms and the microfilaria and the vector. So just like we've talked about for dog heartworm and, and onchocerciasis, but in this case, lymphatic filariasis, the worms live in the lymphatic system. So if you remember, we have three circulatory systems, the arterial, the venous, but people don't usually talk very much about the lymphatic, and that is the most frail, and it's the one that takes the tissue, the tissue fluids that have come out to bathe the cells back into your circulation. And with the adult worms living in your lymphatic system, they block it. And so you start having these, these grotesque swellings, and they start getting infected. Bacteria can get into the lesions, and the skin becomes hard and folded and looks like an elephant's. And I think you saw just great pictures there. Um, of, of that. Same mosquito in Africa, Anopheles mosquitoes transmit both. Um, so we heard the rationale on the malaria side from using the bed nets, and on the mass drug administration side, once per year treatment with ivermectin and another medicine donated, in this case by GlaxoSmithKline called albendazole, is given combination. Once per year is working in this one, not twice per year, but once per year is working. It stops the mosquitoes from getting infected and transmitting the disease. So it's not going to help the swellings. And unfortunately, this again is a pure preventive approach. Uh, the folks with the damage either need to have local care 
or um, uh, I see Gail Thomas here, our surgical consultant, uh, the men can have a very uh, quick surgical correction um, called a, a hydroselectomy, which can also be provided to change, which is a, a transformational um, surgical approach that can be taken. So that's the, um, the approach. Now, the mass drug administration also kills in particular hookworm, which are intestinal parasites. Each hookworm, well, every three hookworms can drink a milliliter of blood a day. Um, and so if you can imagine having 100 of these worms, uh, it doesn't help with anemia. Malaria doesn't help with anemia. In this area we were working in Nigeria, 20% of kids have severe anemia. 60% of kids have some form of anemia, and that's just... Um, just taking care of malaria and, not, and ignoring other causes such as iron deficiency and hookworm uh, will not solve the problem. So there's lots of reasons for synergy and for these two programs to work together. And Nigeria is being very, very um, visionary uh, in, in putting out this notion that, that the, there should be um, uh, a co-implementation of these two programs. I really see it as the Carter Center's marching orders to really help them uh, in Nigeria in linking these two programs and demonstrating, as, as Dr. Bridget said at the end, if we can show that this works, then others will come along. And I think it's, it's a great, great opportunity. Let's take a moment to sort of understand the transmission of malaria. Uh, how do you get it? Uh, how it transfers? How it spreads? I think malaria is probably uh, more familiar to people than, than the great worms we've been talking about <laughs> up here uh, tonight. But it, it's, it, malaria is transmitted from uh, one person to another through the medium of a mosquito. And there are mosquitoes that are more efficient at doing that than others, as Frank said. In most of Africa, the same mosquitoes that transmit malaria also transmit the, the filariasis. When people are injected with a malaria parasite by a, a mosquito, the parasite uh, then goes into, into the liver, eventually comes out of there and begins infecting blood cells. And as each parasite infects the blood cells, a blood cell, it reproduces itself, the parasite, so much that the blood cell ruptures producing other parasites that go and find other blood cells, and that's why people develop uh, anemia with that. But of course, uh, the anemia is uh, the relatively easier part of it. This infection can become so intense because the parasites reproduce so much that they can clog the small capillaries in the brain and other places, and that is what often kills people very rapidly yeah. from malaria. There are different kinds of malaria parasites, but it's the falciparum malaria strain that's most dangerous to, uh, to, human, to, human, to human beings. And um, while there's some malaria parasites that affect uh, animals in, 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 in this instance, it's the, it's the human mosquito uh, transmission of falciparum malaria that is the most dangerous. The world tried to eradicate malaria some decades ago, but the parasite was so well adapted, the mosquitoes are so well adapted that they were able to, um, the parasite, to become resistant to the drugs that were being used, and the mosquito to become resistant to the DDT and other, other um, insecticides that have been used against them uh, as well. These parasites have been around for a long time for a reason, and particularly when you have something that reproduces so rapidly, like, like malaria, uh, parasites able to make genetic adjustments relatively quickly compared to, say, a guinea worm that reproduces once a year. Just if yeah. I could pick up mm -hmm. on that, because it gets back to, to 
talking about what's neglected. Why is there? Why do we have this group called neglected tropical diseases? Because I mean, malaria is over, a, and it's the, not the, neglected. The, the world, and, right? Yeah. And that's an, an important point. Is again coming back to the biology, um, which Dr. Hopkins was mentioning. These parasites, the malaria parasites, can reproduce themselves. So you can have a single bite from a mosquito, and you could die from that bite because the infection will get there, that'll replicate, you could go into a coma, et cetera. A single bite of that same mosquito with a lymphatic filariasis parasite, not, a single bite is not gonna do anything to you. First of all, I, I mentioned it has to have males and females for them to even get going, so it's likely you're gonna have to have at least two, and it's, that one parasite cannot reproduce itself in the body, it's sort of stuck. So, it means that the transmission cycle of lymphatic fluoriasis occurs in the poorest of poor situations where you're being bitten constantly by these mosquitoes, something you and I wouldn't be able to take, um, and poor people um, who are in those situations of, of not having nets, not having screens, et cetera. Malaria can hop on an airplane there's a, and come to the United States. There's something called airport malaria. That's why they spray your, probably if you've been on international flights, they'll spray the plane to kill the mosquitoes, et cetera. So it is a risk for tourists. It is a risk um, uh, for people of, of any economic situation. So, and it's a risk for an army, if you're gonna put an army, for a military issue. So there's a lot of concern, a lot of research, um, and it kills people, which makes it as well um, uh, much more obvious as a public health problem. So a neglected disease tends to be amongst the poor and non-lethal. And other diseases which are lethal and can affect in an epidemic form everyone tend to draw much more attention from the politicians and get much more investment. Um, before we actually met tonight, when I had spoken with Dr. Richards and Dr. Hopkins here, I had explained to them that uh, I had not had personal experience seeing guinea worm. I had not had personal experience seeing river blindness. However, I spent a brief period of my life as the information officer for the Jesuit Refugee Service in Southeast Asia. And uh, I was in Bangkok, but uh, this is at a time when Cambodia was in a state of uh, flux, and the Khmer Rouge had held up northern, northern part of the country. And, and so there were several internally displaced camps of people who could not live in Khmer Rouge-controlled territory. And so um, when I was working for the Jesuit Refugee Service, uh, I went on a field trip with, at the time, Tun Chanaret, who had become the 1997 uh, recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize. He accepted it on behalf of the campaign to ban landmines. He has no legs. His, mm. He was a soldier, and his legs were blown off uh, during the, uh, the war in the 1980s. And uh, he had said, he, 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 without his legs, he still drove a truck. And uh, he had said that he wanted to go and visit one of these internally displaced camps, and would I like to join him? And I said, sure, I would absolutely like to do that. And obviously, I was taking pictures and writing about him and, and doing this field work. And he is in Siem Reap, which is where the Angkor Wat temples are. And so this internal, internally displaced camp was not far from these iconic structures. And we went to... Uh, this camp, uh, and there was a family, and uh, Tun Chenaret had known that the uh, parents had died from malaria, and he mm -hmm. wanted to check on the children. They had just died two days previous, and when we arrived in the camp, um, surely the son had contracted malaria and was in a terrible state, and we got there, and he immediately decided that we had to get him to a clinic. So I sat in the uh, bed of the pickup truck with the boy suffering from malaria, and he was... Uh, 
I don't want to say it was catatonic, but I mean, he was completely shivering and wasn't com comprehensible. I'm sure mm -hmm. he wasn't even coherent. And we drove 30 minutes, maybe 40 minutes, to a, a, a clinic. And it's a, in the rudimentary sense of the word, a clinic. It had a gravel uh, floor. It had rusty beds. And it had simply a mattress and a bunch of broken needles and, and everything. And uh, we left him there in the care of some nurses, no doctors, in the hopes that something would help him. And uh, he died two days later. I mean, the malaria had gone through the entire family. Yeah. And uh, it's an indelible image in my mind. I know how malaria can affect somebody. Obviously, I had taken my pills before I had traveled to the country. You, you go on this regimen, you guys know this very well. Um, and uh, I think that uh, I transposed that image, what I saw personally, to the suffering in Haiti. I mean, and I don't, I, I don't draw the comparisons, but I, I can understand trying to treat this and, and eliminate it from a country uh, is a benefit if not to keep families intact, because that mosquito can bite one member of the family, it can transmit it or bite another member of the family, and it kind of quickly moves, moves, moves through these, uh, these units. So I want to talk briefly, and well, this will be the last question that we ask about uh, malaria, but on the island of Hispaniola, there is an effort to completely eliminate this on the island. And um, I think, Dr. Hopkins, you and I talked about this in 2009 when the Carter Center was sort of ramping up an effort to... Mm -hmm to do this. Um, can you explain what the program is there and how the earthquake has set back those efforts? Well, the problem basically is that that island in the Caribbean, uh, being Haiti, the Dominican Republic, the island of Hispaniola, is the only island in the Caribbean that still has malaria. Most of the other islands used to have it. They've gotten rid of it. Haiti, Dominican Republic have not. That island is also the place in the Western Hemisphere that has over 90% of all the lymphatic filariasis that still occurs in the Western uh, Hemisphere. And so the, the question is, why hasn't this problem been taken care of, these two problems been taken care of uh, before now in that situation, remembering that both malaria and lymphatic filariasis are each a cause and a result of poverty. I get very impatient with uh, grandiose plans to help people abroad. I'd, I, I like to see what difference is it making in people's lives at the grassroots. And here is something that is crying out to be done. So in, in, in 2009, the Carter Center began, actually in 2008, the Carter Center began assisting the two countries to begin collaborating with each other because it, is, it, it won't work for Dominican Republic or Haiti to get rid of either or both of those diseases and have it on the other side. They've got to work together despite the problems, political problems the two countries have had. So we began uh, with uh, a little bit of support from a private donor, uh, encouraging the countries to have quarterly meetings to exchange information. The Dominicans were showing the, the Haitians the kinds of things Dominican Republic was doing against malaria, which were more effective than what the, what the, the Haitians were we're doing the earthquake. President Mrs. Carter went down there in uh, October 2009. Uh, October 2009, right. and of course the earthquake hit in uh, January 2010 and, and disrupted all kinds of things, including this this modest uh, effort. But now we, Carter Center, have begun assisting them again, and they've just had uh, within the last month their first quarterly meeting again. The two sides from uh, for for this calendar year, and we're, we're helping the, the countries to put together a plan that other larger donors can then hopefully support to help them get rid of those two diseases on that island by 2020. I've said more than once before, I, I just see it, it was incredible to me that nobody had done anything about getting rid of disease 
as in, in 19, October 1980, we began working on it at, at starting first at CDC. I'm incredulous that uh, this is another problem that is so obviously needing to be taken care of that has not been uh, addressed up to now, but God willing, it is being addressed now, and, and hopefully other donors will come in and help the two countries to get rid of this uh, problem. The, the uh, Dominican Republic had an outbreak of malaria a few years back in which it was estimated that the cost to their tourism industry, that one country that year, was about $200 million because CDC, the Pan American Health Organization, World Health Organization, everybody else began warning people about going to Dominican Republic because of the malaria. That's apart from the people who died with malaria there and the other people who were, who, who were injured. And so there's every reason, in my estimation, to get rid of those two problems, help those two countries get rid of those two problems. Um, there is a target date for malaria elimination on Hispaniola, uh, and that is... Uh, 2020. And how difficult will it be to reach that goal? It's any, any eradication uh, elimination target date is, is going to be difficult, and it's going to be more difficult than you expect it to be difficult in general. Uh, past experience tells us that, but you can't predict in what ways it will be uh, difficult, but the, the fact is that all of the other islands in the Caribbean have managed to get rid of this, uh, both of these diseases since they were infected uh, before. And, and uh, the malaria uh, on the island is still susceptible to the easiest drug uh, to use. So uh, make hay while the sun shines, so to speak. Uh, the news after the earthquake uh, in Haiti in particular was uh, the spread of cholera, mm. and uh, that seemed to get focus and uh, a lot of attention. It was a dangerous outbreak, and uh, did that hinder or hurt these efforts? I mean, do the same uh, efforts that you apply towards malaria elimination have to be shifted to, to fight cholera? Do you? But of course, the, the ministries of health were completely, uh, almost completely consumed by the distraction of the cholera outbreak. It was killing people, getting a lot of press, uh, uh, et cetera. And so they rightly had to, had to pay at attention to that. And, you know, who knows what's going to happen uh, tomorrow. And the earthquake itself was a, a great, more than a distraction. It disrupted the health services, uh, et cetera. And uh, to me, that's another reason you cannot wave a wand and help people get rid of all these problems, uh, at, at, certainly not at, at once. But do what you can while you can, uh, because you don't know what's going to happen, um, what, what's going to happen tomorrow. Well, at this time, I would like to open up the floor for questions. This would be a good opportunity for you to make your way to one of the microphones that are at uh, either side of the auditorium here. Uh, also, too, we are soliciting questions from the web. Uh, you can uh, register those questions at the hashtag ConvosTCC. Uh, again, hashtag C-O-N-V-O-S-T-C-C. Uh, and they'll make sure that they magically appear in my hands here online. <laughs> um, we do have a question from Twitter. And uh, at we say Emily uh, asks, what one thing would make a difference today in defeating Guinea worm and river blindness? Peace in South Sudan for Guinea worm. Complete peace. In uh, river blindness in the Americas, um, it would be uh, for Brazil and Venezuela um, to work together to um, 
reach this very difficult uh, final inch population that, that's still infected. I would add also, I think a, a competing one thing would be a macrophylaricide to kill the adult worms like that so you don't have to keep treating them for several years. One thing, too, I think this might be a good opportunity to sort of just establish a little bit about uh, the recent history of South Sudan. Uh, it was 2011 was the referendum in which South Sudan voted to become an independent country. 2012? Um, 2011, I believe. 2011, yeah, and uh, only in just the last seven or eight months, there has been, there has been, or in the last year, there's been unrest in South Sudan. Can you, can you kind of at least set the stage so we sort of understand the environment by which the Carter Center is working in South Sudan? 20-year civil war, peace agreement signed in January 2005. The Guinea Ryan program gets going full bore in South Sudan in, uh, uh, towards the end of, uh, of 2005 and it's doing very well, as uh, we've already mentioned here. And then December 15th last year, um, fighting erupts between two political factions that are kind of aligned ethnically uh, as well. And that, uh, in the case of the Guinea program, caused the Carter Center to have to evacuate our almost three dozen expatriate people who were there and, and disrupted excuse me, the program in many areas. Fortunately, it came at the time of year when guinea worm was at the lowest uh, ebb annually, and so it didn't do as much damage as it would have, and, and people were able to get back in there after, after uh, several other weeks, and many of the Sudanese people we were working with, the majority of the folks there, remained in, in place and were able to continue working as well, and the most affected area was not affected by this kind of fighting. So that's, that's been a, a setback, and there's still tension and some fighting going on in areas that are not so heavily affected by guinea worm disease, but that situation could deteriorate uh, rapidly at any time and, again, threaten this uh, very important victory for the people in South Sudan as well as for the world. Um. We have another online question here. Uh, as many neglected tropical disease control measures need similar infrastructure, try to reach similar audiences and use similar meth methods of messaging, what steps would you suggest to improve partnership for horizontal health efforts among international organizations, particularly for neglected zoonotic diseases? So this is talking about treating humans and animals here. Right, yeah, zoonotic diseases are diseases that um are commonly in, in animals that affect humans. Uh, one very familiar zoonotic disease could be uh, rabies, for example, um, which is a very lethal dog, I'll, I'll say dog rabies in particular. Um, I think one of the challenges with the um, uh, zoonotic diseases that I, that I wonder with the question is whether the, the, the infrastructure is being set up in the um, human neglected tropical diseases, which are, are largely in guinea worm health education and filtering, um, and in uh, uh, the diseases we've discussed, mass drug administration, how, how that infrastructure is going to help us um, with the, uh, uh, the zoonotic diseases, the diseases in animals. Now, one condition in particular, and some uh, people get really stickly about whether it is a zoonotic disease, but I won't go into that, is uh, one of my favorite parasitic diseases called uh, uh, sister cirrhosis. Um, and this is one of the most common, if not the most in common, uh, common cause of 
um, infectious epilepsy. Uh, you, you, it's associated with pigs. Um, complicated life cycle that I won't go into, but uh, the fact of the matter is that, that mass drug administration with the medicine that we're using uh, uh, for yet another parasite worm, which is called schistosomiasis um, or snail fever, it's the same medicine that can prevent humans from infecting pigs because the infection cycles between humans and pigs. So that is one zoonotic disease that I do think the infrastructure um, will, uh, in one program, can really affect um, uh, the, the neglected zoonotic diseases. It's interesting, I, I just got off the, I haven't been back in, a, in this country for 24 hours yet. I just got back from Geneva last night about 11 p.m. and I was in a meeting uh, on the World Health Organization um, strategic advisory group for the NTDs and the physicians like me are always going back and forth with the veterinarians on the other side about this issue. So I, um, I, I was just living this just the day before yesterday. <laughs> I, would, I would just add in response to that that it's important to get the physicians and the veterinarians talking together. We've had instances in this well, country. Well, we're talking. <laughs> we've had instances in this country of uh, physicians seeing one syndrome in humans. The veterinarians know that crows are dying, and it's only when they start talking to one another they realize it's a, it's, it's a common encephalitis uh, transmitted by mosquitoes, uh, for example, for, for that example. But the other is to look for examples, commonalities, where uh, it's to the benefit of uh, the, the patients, the, the, the uh, physicians, and the veterinarians to collaborate. And uh, the more areas of commonality like that you can find and build on those. And believe me, the veterinarians know a lot more about worms than the physicians. And almost all of these medicines we've been talking about have come out of veterinary research and the veterinary market to become human tested in humans as human preparations um, because the market is in large animals or in people's cats and dogs. To I mean, there is no market to develop worms, medicines for worms in humans because people who have worms are the bottom billion who are neglected people, who have the neglected diseases. So there's absolutely reason for us to speak with, with uh, veterinarians. They're some of my best friends. <laughs> okay, we actually have a question here on the floor, and if you could uh, give us your name and uh, let us know your question. Um, Kate Berenson from Washington, D.C. Um, you approached my question already in terms of cooperating with veterinarians, but I wanted to know, and probably everybody else does know, so I feel a little naive, how do you coordinate with other um, health service organizations in Africa, in Guatemala. I mean, how there are so many groups who are providing different levels and different kinds and different approaches to health services, I, religious groups and other you know, NGOs and all kinds of things. If you could just sort of give me an idea, I'd like that. I'll, I can start off and, and just note that in the Guinea worm thing, that was a good problem to have because in, in the beginning, almost nobody else was interested in, uh, in Guinea worm disease. It was a matter of collaborating with ourselves. But then when <laughs> others began to get interested, we would have first between CDC and the Carter Center our own meeting and we would meet periodically in, in Washington or some other place with uh, USAID representatives of UNICEF, World Health Organization at the international 
level, and we had we still have international meetings once or twice a year to bring those groups together. But then, invariably, at the country level, we encourage a national task force for Guinea worm and others. The, the onchocerciasis programs have similar national task forces where you get the appropriate people in the representative agencies in the government concern, as well as the international partners, including the NGOs and others, together to uh, discuss problems, exchange information, and find uh, solutions uh, together. So at the, at the um, uh, international and, uh, and national level, periodic meetings of that sort have served well to uh, help foster that kind of cooperation. Can I follow up? Yeah, just, yeah, mm -hmm. just yeah, quickly, yeah, sure. I understand that on an on a institutional level or organizational level, but when you get, when you get, you know, a health service person who's out in a village who's probably been told to look for, you know, give information on AIDS, to give information on um, uh, newborn care, yeah. uh, uh, reproductive health care for men and women, I mean, yeah. how mm -hmm. does that all get integrated or does it? It does, depending on that health worker. And the, the, to me, the challenge for uh, people who are not at that level is to help people in that situation to set priorities, recognize that they can't do everything uh, all the time. And it, it has to be individualized. Hi, if you could give us your name and your question. So, I'm Angie Layton from Louisville, Colorado. Just wanted to get a take on, I know there's a lot of concern about antibiotic resistant diseases, and I'm wondering if um, those types of problems are problems and what people are doing to look at drug-resistant malaria and types of things like that, and what is our future if the bugs are going to all kill us eventually? <laughs> well, well. Um, Science fiction, Dr. Richard. <laughs> our future is bright. I, I think, uh, you know, you, you bring up a, a common concern on the, the approach that I've been describing of mass drug administration. Um, just think, the mass drug administration program for uh, river blindness began in 1987, so over 25 years. And um, the, is it 30? Who knows? Anyway, do the math. But it's the, 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 the thing that's really interesting about the worms is that they are not able to, at least the ones I've described that go through the vectors, their reproductive potential, unlike the one that we talked about for malaria, is not one where um, a resistant gene is easily promoted. That said, people are really worried now that the dog heartworm that I described is now developing resistance, well described now, to, to uh, the medicine Ivermectin, the human form, is the mectazan we've been talking about. In addition, hookworm, which I mentioned earlier, um, is well known to uh, have developed resistance to some of the medicines. And in the veterinary market, what drives this is the fact that the, the intestinal worms in cattle and horses quickly develop resistance. So it is something that people are very much worried about along with just in, in, in the antibiotics in general, they don't make a lot of money for pharmaceutical companies, so there is not a lot of investment to find new medicines, but I would be much more concerned about the bacteria uh, in terms of emerging resistance and what we're struggling with in these hospitals these days 
um, than I would about this group of, 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 of parasites because that's where the real resistance issue um, is always emerging. Hi there, uh, my name is Alex Freeman. I'm from Washington, D.C. My question is, uh, based on your experience, what do you think the best uh, prevention for, ma for malaria is, and is there a major difference between malaria prevention in urban areas and in rural areas? So, the, the approach to, um, I'll answer the second part first. The, the, the approach in urban areas is more likely to be um, indoor residual spraying. Um, in r more distant rural areas, particularly the way that, that structures are, uh, houses are put up, um, insecticide-treated bed nets are, are important. Insecticide resistance remains a really major issue, and now the emergence of resistance to this important class called the artemisinins that, that now is being battled in Southeast Asia. For some reason, emergence of, of resistance in malaria always seems to come from the same place has everybody really nervous. Um, in particular, the Gates Foundation, Bill and Melinda Gates, a few years ago declared that our objective ought to be malaria eradication. Uh, and now shortly thereafter, some of our best tools are, are really um, being questioned. The first part of your question was, did I answer both parts? I um, might have missed the part that yeah, you asked. Yeah, kind of answered. Just of, um, between insecticide-treated bed nets, indoor residual spraying, also larvicide, um, like chemical killing the larva, and also ACT treatment, what uh, do you think is best, or a combination of them? Well, you know, I think you really can't talk about getting rid of malaria without dealing with the vectors. So the, the first three, as opposed to the, the, the treatment with ACTs of cases. But one of the things that I didn't mention that, that I should, that is really important about this mass drug administration business that the neglected tropical disease people have been doing. Remember last year, um, over 700 million people were treated with donated medicines um, amongst the, the five major neglected tropical diseases that have the Mass Drug Administration approach. The malaria community is now looking at that and trying to actually find a good drug or molecule to utilize the system developed by the neglected tropical disease folks in a way to get at malaria. So uh, it may start to involve even more things that you mentioned in the, in the approach to trying to actually break transmission of malaria. And that's because so many people are asymptomatic who have malaria but still capable of infecting mosquitoes. And you, can, you, can't di you can't even diagnose those people, but the mosquito seems to be able to find the malaria and transmit it. But it, we human beings can't figure those people out. So maybe just treating everybody is the, idea, um, uh, the ideal approach to that. And it's for that reason, actually, that I'm on one of the Bill and Melinda Gates' committees, even though I'm not a malariologist, but my involvement in mass drug administration programs is one that they would like to get experience from people who've done that as they think about that new strategy. Thank you. Thank you for your question. Go ahead and state your name. And um, hi, my name is Yasmin Champon. I'm from Accra, Ghana, but I go to school in California. So my question is, um, how is the Carter Center and organizations like the Carter Center um, empowering African governments? Are, they, are you trying to fully transition these countries to be able to take care of their people? And how is the Carter Center holding governments like Ghana and the Nigerian government accountable for health policies in their, in their own nations? This is really the core of the yes, effort, isn't it? We, yeah. we, I, I can't, I'm speaking for the Carter Center, not for other organizations. <laughs> and uh, we, we do see our role as being to help 
help governments, and I would, I would note in the, in, in the specific example of Nigeria, for example, that Nigerian government donated $2 million to the Carter Center to help us to work with uh, Nigeria in getting rid of guinea worm disease. Another example would be that when I first began working in West Africa with smallpox eradication program over a generation ago, Centers for Disease Control had uh, about a dozen expatriates working in Nigeria to help Nigeria get rid of guinea worm disease. We began with one person on the ground to help Nigeria get rid of, sorry, CDC worked with smallpox. Carter Center began uh, with one expatriate in Nigeria helping to get rid of guinea worm, and it's uh, been now more than 15 years that we've had no expatriate in Nigeria. The entire uh, assistance to Nigerian effort with several diseases, our largest program, health program ever, is entirely Nigerian, run by Nigerians. We work through and with ministries of health, and I will say that that sets us apart from many other NGOs. We recognize we're not sovereign in the country, and, and we're there to help people to solve their own problems, working with and, and through their health, health system. So we are down to our final two questions, so we'll take both of you that are here on the floor, and if you could go ahead and give us your name and your question. Hi, I'm Janice Duke from Kettering, Ohio, and I was just wondering about in terms of vaccinations for malaria, are there, uh, do you think there'll be success in that someday? I'm hoping that there'll be success. Um, you know, there's this RTSS vaccine that um, uh, is a GSK vaccine that's there, but it's only about 50% efficacious. Uh, and it really has to be looked at as the first generation, um, how long the vaccination uh, will work. In other words, how often you have to give it is another big question. People are looking hard, but my, to come back to my previous comment, um, I think people are, are, are hoping not to maybe put all of their, um, all their money on a vaccine and thinking more about the mass drug administration approach in case they can find a drug rather than a vaccine um, to try and, and um, attack malaria. But, you know, progress has been made, but, but it's, um, it's a big challenge. Thank you for your question. Hi, if you could give Hi. us your name and your My question. My name is Francis Cork. I'm from Washington, D.C. I've lived in Africa and the Middle East for many years. Uh, my question is really about big pharma. You've mm. talked about it a bit tonight. Um, I remember Merck becoming a real hero when they gave uh, the medications that you mentioned earlier. I know we've read about President Clinton sort of jawboning the industry to bring down the, the cost of HIV yep. meds. Uh, the last country I lived in in Africa, the government just categorically refused to import tuberculosis um, medicine and other infectious disease because it was just too expensive. Have you had other successes at getting um, the big pharmaceutical companies to actually either get, give the medicine free like Merck has or to... Um, um, uh, contribute a lot to what you're trying to do, or are we still out paying for it to be able to give it away? Um, you know, if you look at the history of Big Pharma and HIV, it's a dire story. Um, and uh, uh, I, I recognize that. The history of Big Pharma, at least in the NTDs in my experience, the neglected tropical diseases, is um, one that's the other side of the coin that's very um, admirable, uh, you know, um, pharmacophilanthropy. Um, and the, uh, the fact of the matter is, right now, Big Pharma is donating more medicines for the five major NTDs than the international community and the countries have figured out how to deliver. 
Um, as a matter of fact, there is, you know, there is a really big concern um, that Big Pharma is going to say, we gave you safe and effective medicines, um, but you guys couldn't figure out how to deliver it. Uh, but at, at this point in time, we have, uh, there are more medicines for schistosomiasis, for trachoma, for lymphatic filariasis, for intestinal worms, and for river blindness than um, uh, the countries and the partners of the countries are able to distribute. And people are really worried because right now the funding gap to be able to do that is estimated at about $200 million a year, whereas the donation is well over $1.6 billion in terms of its value per year. So the argument to donors and, and others alike is look at, look at what you're leveraging um, for a small amount of money. You know, 20% of the distribution cost, you have the other 80% of what it's going to take here. And this, in fact, was what the discussion in Geneva was the day before yesterday in the strategic group on how are we going to, um, uh, how are we going to find that money. And from the perspective of... Uh, International aid, 37% of which goes to um, HIV AIDS, 8 to 9% to malaria, 3 to 4% to TB, and 0.6% or one half a percent to the NTDs. $200 million is not a lot of money from the overall perspective. Yet, as you've heard tonight, it's, it's not real easy to explain. The words are very difficult to pronounce. The life cycles are confusing, and the science can be difficult. And until we find a better way to um, uh, explain and motivate and get people excited about what the potentials of this donation, uh, what the opportunity is, then you know I, I'm, I'm really worried. Um, the next few years will tell. Thank you all for your questions, both online and here in person. That's uh, contributed greatly to the conversation that we've been having here tonight with uh, Dr. Donald Hopkins and Dr. Frank Richards. And uh, I just want to take this opportunity before we close out the program to sort of wrap it up. And I want you to kind of just give me some of your final thoughts on, on the road ahead, you know, some of uh, the challenges and the obstacles you face and, and how you reach the end game. And be brief. If we well, can. Uh, yes. <laughs> now, I would just, to just point to maybe three points. One is uh, to note changing behavior of people at village level and changing their mentality once people see that they're able to attack some of these problems and get rid of them. Also changing behavior in ministries of health and other, other governments. I was just in Ethiopia a few weeks ago, and we learned there that uh, the Carter Center assisted area where we urge the uh, ministry to go back after a drug, in this instance, uh, Zithromax have been distributed to prevent trachoma, uh, go back and assess to make sure that you have covered as many people as the numbers said you were covering. And in fact, when they did that, they found some surprises. Some areas were lower, a little bit better than they had thought. But then the ministry saw that and realized they should be doing that for vaccine coverage, for other kinds of things, and that was something that was passed on also to the local local government. And final point I would make would be just to come back to guinea worm and ask you to imagine several of these worms coming out of a person's body at the same time. But also think about Nigeria, one of the most complex countries uh, in, in Africa, and think about South Sudan, certainly a country that has had more difficulty than any other countries in, 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 South, in, in the guinea worm eradication program. 
know that Nigeria was certified, which once had more cases of guinea worm than any other country in the world, was certified last December as being guinea worm free, and see that South Sudan had four successive months, November, December, January, February of this year, four consecutive months with zero cases. So they're getting close as well, despite all of the difficulties. Those are two big wins. Dr. Richards? So anybody who knows me knows I'm a, a index card freak. So <laughs> I get back uh, at 11 o'clock last night, and I'm like, this is, I've, I've got this conversations with the Carter where I can't use PowerPoint, and I've just got to sort of, so I pulled out my index file and said, what, you know, what, uh, what could, could I use, and went through it. And there's one thing that I just want to read really quickly um, <clears throat> to end up, and then this won't take three minutes or... <laughs> President Carter, in his acceptance speech for the 2002 Nobel Prize, Peace Prize, said that the great challenge of this new century, this new millennium, is the growing chasm between the richest and the poorest of us on this earth. The Carter Center, by focusing on neglected tropical diseases that kill or maim the poorest of the poor, is not only about global health, but also about global peace. That is the perfect way to end this conversation at the Carter Center. Uh, that does conclude our webcast for this evening. I'd like to thank both Dr. Hopkins and Dr. Richards for sharing the Carter Center's health work with us. Uh, for those watching, additional information about conversations at the Carter Center is available on the Center's website, www.cartercenter.org. If you want to be sure you're getting the latest news about conversations or other Carter Center events and programs, visit their website to sign up for emails or join them on Facebook, Google+, or Twitter. It's been an honor for me to be able to talk to you both here. Thanks Thank you much. all for joining us in this conversation. It's been fascinating, and I hope everybody learned something. Thanks for coming. This has been a podcast from the Carter Center online at cartercenter.org.